This is Work the Case, a Criminal Minds legal podcast. Okay, so Hope, I actually have an intro for this episode, if you, if you, if you indulge me. Okay, I'll suffer through it. Okay. <clears throat> Coming in in this corner, they are the five merry murderers of the BAU, FBI's number one suspect killing team. And in this corner, we have a law established in 1996 that protects patient privacy as decreed in the constitutional fourth amendment it's hippo ding 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 um <laughs> <laughs> hi welcome to work the case i'm lee and i'm hope and uh today <laughs> we're covering episode seven of criminal minds which um shit did you get the title of this one i believe it's fox okay this episode as you can tell from the perfect intro that i just did they violate hipaa so much that there needs to be an episode of svu on how they violated this law it's an entire plot point that they violate this law like and it's not even like a fun like flirty kind of uh like violating this law like they straight up break like kick a door down to violate it yes so um let's let's get started with the summary here um the episode starts out with this lovely family like they are this is like a tv in love family like the husband and wife love each other the kids are so happy they're perfect they have a dog and the dog's got a smart collar which by the way if uh, if you ever were like let's put a smart collar on a dog i would i would just come kill you and cut out the middleman I would on a cat, but not this Rottweiler with a doggy door big enough to fit a human person through. Yeah, like a whole guy. So they they have this dog, which immediately the killer gives a stake to, and that dog is out of fucking commission. So, um, like, the basically the killer breaks in while the husband and wife are sleeping, sneaks into the bed after tying the husband up so the wife wakes up with the unsub in her bed, which, unrealistic, but fine. It is. It was fucked up. I was like, you know what? I don't think that would like happen realistically. I think it would wake her up, but it's fucked up enough that I'll let it slide. Yeah, it's it's really scary. So uh, this uh, killer has struck before. The BAU thinks once, but uh, we learned later that's incorrect. This is your typical family annihilator. The killer uh, separates the children and the parents. Does basically keeps them alive for several days and then kills them. They strike families that are going on vacation, so nobody notices that they're missing. And when the uh, when the unsubs go to invest, sorry, the unsubs. Um, <laughs> when the team goes to investigate, they discover that the unsub is related to all of the victims by the fact that he is a therapist counselor yeah he's a therapist he's like a family or child therapist yeah so a child or family therapist uh that has been seeing all of the families who have had some type of strife and when he identifies a family that's like close to breaking up or like something like that he goes in tries to replace the father lives out a fantasy of being a dad and then kills them when the fantasy is interrupted yeah, and not even necessarily close to breaking up, but they have some issue, like, one of the families, right, the mom's a spendthrift, like, there's some family issue, and then they have a son and a daughter like the unsub has. Yes, and that's because the unsub had 
a family, which a wife, a son, and a daughter. The wife left him, so and moved to like oh I Ohio, like moved really far away too. So yeah, good for her. Yeah, no, I mean the guy's fucking insane. So like, good for you, bestie. You did it right. Uh, Carl Arnold is the name of the episode, by the way. Um, so he's been playing this game where he replaces the husband and kills the family when the fantasy isn't being fulfilling enough. And turns out at the end of the episode, uh, they very dramatically reveal he's done this to like eight families. So a lot, yes. Yeah, no, he's very prolific, and the FBI hasn't figured it out. So good job, team. Because they do at the beginning of this one, they assume it's a murder suicide with the husband, which I guess is the hint that they just assumed all of them were. Yeah, because the way that he kills them is he stabs the wife and children to death several times. And he shoots the husband once in the temple. So, you know, covering up a crime by make, by staging it to look like another crime is a pretty common tactic, especially if you're trying to emasculate a man, then suicide seems like a pretty obvious way to do it. I will say they do have um, what I call TV headshots, where... Uh, Very pretty. Yeah, it's not what it looks like when you shoot yourself in the head. Yeah, it's like this neat little, it looks like a cigarette burn on their temple. I'm like, mm, no, that would be a crater. Like, yeah, what, what is it, like a 9mm that they shot themselves in the head with? So, like, no, they, like, they would still be cleaning up that crime scene two weeks later. It's nasty. There's, like, a lot of little things to note in this episode. You know, like, I, we, we could sit here and talk for hours about the, uh, like, the police misconduct and stuff like that. But before we do that, I do want to note, Tony Todd is in this episode. <laughs> Tony Todd, who, like, you know, a fucking candy man, uh, <laughs> is just playing a guy in this episode that I think gets police brutality, truly. He, oh, by the way, also, he's, like, in, the, he was in uh, some other stuff, like The Crow, um, he, he was in a couple of the Final Destination movies, but, like, he's most known for being fucking Candyman to the point where, like, I was watching this episode, and you know that I can't recognize faces at all. But I heard his voice, and I was like, I thought that's fucking Candyman. <laughs> um, so that's just, like, a weird casting choice. Anyways, uh... Yeah, not to typecast anyone. Not to typecast anybody, but uh, a serial killer that is a, kind of a metaphor for cultural appropriation and how police and society treats black man and also a black man being police brutality again very very typecast mr mr todd (laughs) so let's get into the 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 psychology i guess of this episode because uh they do have a couple of things so um the killer is a family annihilator which is a specific type of serial killer that basically aims to destroy the family units specifically they have rage against like a parental unit, mostly mom or dad. There's usually a lot of the psychology that we know about this comes from nuclear families. So like it's going to be centered on like the cis hat normative nuclear family. But um, a family annihilator is generally someone that sees men as competition, women as trophies, and children as property. So when you get like a family annihilator like this, the like, the purpose really is either focused on the man and that, like, this is a man that uh, covets something that I want, so I have to kill him. Or it focuses on the woman in that, like, 
she chose this man and decided to procreate with him rather than me, so I'm angry at her. So, A Family Annihilator is basically a rage kind of based crime. Um, these are usually like well planned and like it's not. These can be passionate crimes, but usually they're premeditated and they come from some deep place of resentment, anger, or other types of emotions in that uh, category. Now, he, as a family annihilator, is somebody that is well entrenched in the family dynamic because he has therapy experience with all of his patients. So um, he's really getting in on the ground floor with his whole family annihilator plan. This kind of goes back to what they will eventually profile him. It's, this profile comes very late in this episode, but they profile him as uh, somebody who recently lost his family. Despite all of his problems in the home at work, he is socially and sexually confident. He is compulsive. He is a planner. He researches well. He keeps notes. He's very meticulous. Derek Morgan specifically says, plan the work, work the plan. That's kind of like the tagline of this episode. Yeah, he says it like three times. Yeah, and Derek also says he's here to play daddy. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, Morgan, (laughs) can we calm down? (laughs) he also as a therapist is you know well educated he doesn't come from the best background but he is smart and um so that's his thing now there's two other people in this that have interesting abnormal psychology uh toby todd i don't know his name in the show but uh he is the biological father of the children killed in what the fbi considers the first family yeah he's mr crawford i don't remember the first name but i have mr crawford in my notes yeah well is he mr crawford because i thought crawford was the he's mr miller crawford was the the white family that was killed okay they they put these names in a bag and just shake them up they do um in our defense, so you know it's one of those days. Uh, also, it's Tony Todd, so I'm not gonna like. Why would I call him Mr. Miller if I know he's Tony Todd? Um, so Tony Todd. Uh, so basically, he was an alcoholic and abusive towards his wife. So she left him for another man, married him. The husband, wife, and stepchildren were killed. Uh, they found Miller holed up in a hotel room. He had the kid's blood on his jacket, so they brought him in as a suspect. Uh, I want to specifically say that Miller is, you know, he's played by Tony Todd. He's a black man. The person that was killed in the first family, he was a white man. So, like, already there's, like, a dynamic that's in play. But, so, Mr. Mister Miller was an abuse victim himself. He had an alcoholic mother who sexually abused him. He specifically doesn't continue the cycle with his own children, but he does physically abuse his wife, which is why she eventually divorces him. And uh, it's a, it's like, he's a bad guy, but also it's such a sad scene where he's talking about his baby boy clutching a photo, like a picture, and he's dead. Yeah, like, they, they did this interrogation scene incredibly well. Like, we're going to get into the legal shit of it mm-hmm. because it's wild, but, like, the actual acting and, like, content mm-hmm. of this scene... It hits different, y'all. No, Tony Todd is, like, an amazing actor, and he just does this scene so fucking sad, and Reed is across from him, just like, I'm so scared because he's a big man. And Hodge <laughs> is like, sit down, be calm. 
so that so that's really sad uh this guy's clearly suffer like he's got ptsd and he's clearly suffering from a lot going on that doesn't excuse his actions but uh in terms of abnormal psychology we don't aim to excuse we aim to explain and um the explanation for you know why does he do this it, it's because he's got trauma that doesn't mean that he's okay to do it or he should do it or that we shouldn't punish him for doing it it just means that like if you want the answer that's the answer the other abnormal psychology is the crawfords so this is the brother of the wife of the crawford family he is estranged from their family because he has what the show calls manic depression we don't really use that term anymore Manic depression is a kind of antiquated term for bipolar disorder. Oh, I thought it was the reverse. I thought it used to be bipolar, and now we call it manic depression. So it was formerly called manic depression. Okay. If you say either, people will know what you're talking about. Well, so the reason that they call it bipolar disorder is if you call it manic depression, that kind of already you're associating the word manic with it, which can have some societal repercussions. Yeah. So calling it that is also kind of, eh. um, But also manic depression... It explains bipolar basically as like two phases where it's like it's like you're manic or you're depression. Um, And that's not always the case with bipolar disorder because bipolar disorder has much more symptoms than just like fits of mania. Bipolar disorder is it can have symptoms such as, you know, lack of sleep, lack of appetite, sexual impulsive behavior, other impulsive behavior. People with bipolar disorder are commonly characterized by they aren't really well at saving money they have sexual relationships with people that are very casual in nature they're very bad at maintaining long relationships and they also can have fraught personal relationships outside of just sex and stuff like that so it's it's a phasic disorder that essentially makes it so like a person experiences emotional highs and lows in like very you're feeling like a 10 when most people are not that extreme most of the time. Yes, and usually these bursts last about two weeks. So you're usually manic for at least two weeks or you have a low for, like there's certain time links that they use to specifically diagnose it too. Yeah, because, like, you know, these can last weeks or months even. If you have emotional swings that are shorter time periods, that's usually indicative of a different type of disorder. Frank Crawford, uh, well, his last name wouldn't be Crawford, but, you know, Frank. So he has bipolar disorder, and I'm going to be real. The way they present him is much, it reads less as bipolar, and it reads much more as, like, a developmental issue. That's what I thought. It's very Lenny from Of Mice and Men. Like, they very much play him as someone who's ID, and so intellectually disabled, and so it's very odd that they mention the manic depression and not the obvious like other traits that he's exhibiting yeah like that for him i would say it's much more likely that there's some kind of developmental disorder or intellectual disability because you know bipolar disorder wouldn't impede your ability to like recognize emotions in other people it might make you less able to respond in healthy or or measured ways to those stimuli but he, the way it's it reads is like he's having difficulty 
seeing his sister in mortal terror and understanding that she is afraid. So I don't... And also, like, he's speaking in a very childlike way the entire interview. Mm -hmm. And just, like, the way he's conducting himself is very much someone who is not as mentally, um, like, capable as, like, your average adult. Like, he just doesn't seem like he's up to speed on any of it. Yeah, so, and then beyond that, they mentioned that he is unmedicated. So I think, like, it... You know, not to dip into the legal waters, but I think this would not be a very well taken interview. Um, I don't think you can really admit this. It, like it, I, I'm saying it's a good thing that he's not the killer because. Yeah. Anyways, so um. I have notes on that. Do not worry. Yeah. So and then just my final note on um, going into, you know, kind of like the psychology and all the other stuff is. So they mentioned diazepam as like something somebody was being treated with later on in the episode weird weird one <laughs> yeah weird choice because they're saying it's for depression but that's valium that's that'll get you you yeah. know it'll take care of your depression i guess yeah, diazepam's for anxiety or seizures like it's <laughs> it's i wouldn't use that one to treat depression but like fucking go off king it's a benzodiazepine so like you can't be sad if you're asleep, you know? Yeah, you, you can't be asleep if... Yeah, you can't be sad if you're fucking unconscious. Anyway, so that's... Beyond the point, I just wanted to note that there also is a lot going on here with uh, child art psychology. So here's the thing. Children are very hard to profile because children don't react logically to things. So taking a child's drawing and using that as the basis for any kind of psychological profile is already going to have like its limits and faults i think in particular there's like this so like play therapy is kind of a way that people like to treat children with certain conditions and stuff like that and like art therapy and all of that coming from the other side hey it's fucking weird For the viewers at home, my mom is so terribly dead. So basically, all throughout elementary school, school counselors were on my dick. I I got taken out of class once a week for like a year so that I could go play in a sandbox to tell the counselor that I wasn't going to kill myself. So like, that was fun. I don't know why that was a thing. But hey, it's fucking weird. And also, I don't know how you interpret anything from it. I understand that it's a psych- psychological science, but like, fucking say la vie. <laughs> So, but they, they're sitting there at that one point, and they're looking at this kid's drawing, and they're just like, it's in black and white, which means that she's depressed, but her other drawings use a lot of color, which means she's overly confident and probably above average intelligence. What the fuck do you mean? <laughs> yeah, it's also, I mean, I understand seeing the difference, but I think the thing for me that was more compelling rather than, like, the colors was the dimensions, because, mm-hmm. fuck, maybe the parents just didn't have color that day. Like, I don't think... The child has complete control over what colors they're using necessarily, but I think seeing like I don't know an eight year old go from these, yeah, going these basic things to like super detailed like here's the three D dimensional house and it's all shaded like yeah I think that's more noticeable and weird than a difference in color. Yeah, I don't know. Sometimes they show they're just like look at this weird thing and I'm like y'all gonna talk about the knife? Y'all gonna talk about the the bullet hole? Y'all gonna yeah. talk about the uh, the painting that was askew? <laughs> yeah, like, I'll give the writers points. Like, they're very good at directing your attention where they need it to go to get to the end result that they want. But sometimes it's just not real. Like, it's not, I don't say it's not realistic, because fucking obviously the show isn't realistic. But it's sometimes it's just wild. Let's do a really quick Gideon mental health check. There is a point in the episode where he is, I, like, 
hazing Derek? I have a note on that because I was like, Gideon would be the worst fucking person to work with based on this little like three minute section. I, I think Derek has like a case to sue the FBI. <laughs> yeah, because at one point he's looking at the doggy door and he's like, well, the guy would have to be pretty small to get in through this. And the dad was like a bigger man. He was a black belt in judo, whatever the fuck that means. Mm-hmm. And Gideon comes up, presses a knuckle to the back of Morgan's head and goes, and now I have a gun to your head. Does it matter how big I am now? And Morgan just sits there, like, staring forward, and I feel so bad for him in that moment. Yeah. Like, if one of my co-workers did this to me, I'd be like, hey, what the fuck is wrong with you? And then three minutes later, they go up to the bedroom, and they're, like, looking around, and they're like, well, how did they do it? And Gideon starts screaming, help me, help, help, like, loud at full volume morgan says what are you doing and gideon keeps doing it as like neighbors turn on the lights and dogs bark and people freak out and then he turns and looks at him and goes why did no one hear them scream and it's like you could have just said that you could have just said hey we're in their bedroom it looks like the neighborhood is around why wouldn't they hear noises instead of screaming and having like eight calls to the police department head on and come in like three episodes after Derek specifically told Hodge like I'm gonna stay here at the office because I don't fucking want to go in the field with Gideon and like yeah but buddy you were right <laughs> hey, also like the like I think the third thing I wrote down for the episode was um Hotch comes to the office with baby Jack and everyone is like so fucking happy like they're literally in the lobby crying over this child that is realistic though and and Derek goes like someone goes like Elle turns to Derek and says yes I have this in my notes too doesn't that make you kind of want to have a kid and he goes nah I'll, I'll just keep practicing like Derek fucks I wrote that down. yeah <laughs> that man is feral anyway so I think we can get into the legal stuff now. So we kind of went through all the profiling and things like that. The first thing I want to say is there's not a ton of evidence as to why this is a necessarily a federal crime. Mm-hmm. Um, there's obviously a lot of bodies and things along those lines, but murder by well, itself isn't automatically federal. But it's more than three bodies, and I think that's the classic criminal mind justification is if you drop three bodies, then we get to come in. Yeah, that's, like, their general justification, but in real life, like, this would be a state crime. The state cops would be handling it. Um, they might have assistance from the FBI um, or something if they suspect someone's crossed state lines, but if they thought it was just, like, a dad went crazy and shot the family, etc., it would just be state. So got him. <laughs> Don't these happen in two different cities, so, like... No, it has to be across the state. No, I'm saying, like, don't, like... Because D.C., as you and I both know, is not necessarily super residential, so these families both kind of live in outskirt areas, so couldn't this... I mean, this could easily be in two different cities, and if that's the case, then, like, how did they even get both of them on their fucking radar? Yeah, and also... It's really weird. So I mentioned this in the um, kidnapping episode too. Like the feds can nose in if they just super want to because they can usually find some way to justify interstate commerce. They can say, well, the gun was brought in or mm-hmm. they have a or something that was somewhat related at one point that crossed state lines. But they never mention any of that. So anyway, that's my one. That's my first nitpicky thing. It has no relation to the episode except for the fact that I'm waiting to dunk on criminal minds. So... The first legal point is they have Mr. Miller, they arrest him um, on suspicion that he was the one that killed his family, Yeah. Um, and then they have the second family die, so they're like, well, we've got to talk to this guy, what the fuck's going on? 
it would probably be fine that they arrested him because they had probable cause because like they had general idea of like he was an abusive father he probably wasn't a fan this was like two days after they got married she the wife remarried and they do mention this and this is true is that abusive husbands tend to view their wives and children as property and so seeing them get married right could have been a trigger for him to murder the entire family so i think they have and then when they find him he's like running from the police he's in a motel and he has like blood of his children like on his jacket Mm -hmm. so for an arrest and for a warrant for his arrest they're fine now I would like to point out two things, the first of which is that he does mention that the police have been beating the shit out of him for the past couple of days. So, and he has police brutality. Guy. Yeah. As well as the fact that Reed, like, they're passing around his, like, mugshot or whatever, and Reed takes one look at it and goes, wow, if anyone can do overwhelming force, it's him. And I'm like, Reed, it's from the shoulders up. Like... <laughs> Now, I will say, they probably do have some kind of information on him on that sheet, like the fact that he's six foot goddamn four. Oh, no, it's just, they were just passing around. Don't worry, I checked. It was just the picture. So, like... Okay, well then, yeah, Reed, what's up? Yeah, but that's my hot take. So, Reed is doing baby's first interrogation, which could be a weakness on, like, if I'm cross-examining him on this entire thing, because I'd be like, well, is it your first... Solo interrogation, yes. Is it, you know, like, and try and get him to look less credible in front of the jury because of that? So, for the record, they've noted that he's been sitting in on other serial killer, like, interviews. So, he's sat in on other interviews and he's participated in them. He just hasn't done them solo. And also, he's been interviewing, like, we caught Ted Bundy. So, he's been interviewing this guy. Uh, so, he's been, like, caught people, which are different than suspects. That's what I mean. Like, running, he's, he hasn't been running point, And so, I think that's something you could question him on. But also, as we've discussed before, nothing about this questioning is illegal. Now, Mr. Miller would definitely have a suit. Sorry, I'm hiccuping. Um, would definitely have a suit for police brutality, for... Things along those lines, not necessarily unlawful imprisonment because it's pretty valid if they find you with blood from the crime scene that they might yeah. want to arrest you. Um, so false imprisonments might be lost. But they also mentioned before they go in, they're like, he hasn't been talking. So presumably he has invoked his Fifth Amendment rights, but not his Sixth, which is frustrating but is something that people do. For some reason, a lot of people will only invoke one or the other. So they'll ask for an attorney but start confessing or they'll... Like, not talk, but not ask for an attorney. Or they'll verbally invoke their rights, but sign them away on paper. Like, because there's a misunderstanding of how they work, right? Like, just in the general public. But, so he invokes his fifth, but not his sixth. He's sitting there. Reed comes in. Reed is acting like a little bitch. um, Presumably intentionally. And Miller is just bullying him, which is very (laughs) funny to watch. But eventually, like... He pisses Miller off enough that Miller, like, slams his hands on the table. He stands up, and Hotch comes in, and he's like, is this your fucking daddy? (laughs) And Reed essentially goes through, because Reed is also showing him pictures of, like, the bodies and et cetera. And then Reed goes through, like, his whole background of, you were abused, you were sexually abused, and what I want to know is, did you continue that cycle with your children? The scene fucks, but Miller is like, no, I never laid a hand on my children. I walked in. I was looking for my family. I found them all dead. I knew the cops would blame me, and they have. And so I tried to run, and they caught me anyway. Now, again, this isn't 
being used in court for like the truth like they would presumably let him go after this because reed believes him and is like yeah he obviously didn't do it Mm -hmm. but it would definitely be a violation of your fifth amendment because you invoke your right not to speak and you can waive that right just by confessing but they also can't force you to speak and so that can sometimes be physical but i would say that showing a man pictures of his dead family and accusing him of beating and raping his children like constantly over and over again while he's also having a breakdown yeah as reed says which again we're, we will assume if we put him on stand he will say would be severe enough that that would count as psychological coercion and so would be a violation but again none of this is going to be used against the actual killer so it's not in a criminal trial so he's just got to go for the police brutality claim the next is the crime scene search we've gone over those before that's fine they'd have permission um they'd probably have to get permission from the person who inherited the estate or the executor of it but again this is not a big deal they also have a scene where the md is like reading all of the causes of death and all of like the wounds like on a recorder which sometimes they do they also submit a written report but i would like to point out that the audible report on this is super lax like they don't mention the cause of death on the five-year-old they aren't giving any they say they say examination no, they give they on two bodies, but not for the five-year-old. They are not listing if they did any blood toxicity tests. They aren't listing any weights of individual organs, conditions of different parts of the body. There's some things here that in real life you would maybe want to see, but they would also be submitting a written report probably listing all of that. So, like, it's kind of whatever. I just wanted to point that out. Yeah, so going through all of this, as well as the fact that, do-do-do, sorry, I'm going through my notes real quick. Yeah, so they then they find that one of the wives has been sending money to a quote-unquote random address. And they go and search it. So, so this is like forensic accounting. So how do you get permission to look into a dead person's financial records? Like, where does that permission come from? Yeah, so you would have to get permission either, again, just from the bank themselves or from the executor of that person's estate. You could also ask for a warrant super easily. I mean, I think you have more than enough cause to look through someone's estate when they when you suspect violent murder. Um, so I think it would be pretty easy to get that. But I think the weirdest thing is they get a warrant to search that house, which, like, okay i mean that's pretty loose with cause but like i think it makes sense enough that for the plot reasons we will move on but it's weird that they find him they say they apparently just don't know his name or they don't look up that he's her brother like he mentions that later and they're all shocked and it's like you didn't like i don't know google the name of the dudes who house you were about to go search like you didn't hack the guy yeah like it's it's really weird. It's just, like, really lazy, like, footwork. Because um, you're like, she's sending money here. We got to go search it. He's the suspect. But we're not going to see who it actually is. Really weird. Um, when they do search the house, a dog does attack them. They would have just fucking killed the dog. But they play it up where, like, he calls the dog back and it's fine. Because um, we don't want to show a murder of a dog on TV, I guess. We'll show, we'll show a bunch of dog corpses, but we won't show a dog physically getting shot. Yeah. Then we go into the questioning of the brother. So like we said earlier, he's really giving off more signs of intellectual disability than anything else. But 
So he has presumably waived his rights. He's obviously been arrested. He's obviously being questioned, right? He can't leave. But they're also asking him things that are just, it's really weird. So he has presumably waived his rights. He may or may not be able to do that intelligently if he has a severe intellectual disability. So a lot of people with... Or a severe unmedicated mental disability or yeah that is affecting him obviously enough that someone notices it like Gideon does and so this would depend so a lot of people with ID you probably won't even notice if you're talking to them because they learn how to mask it a lot of people who are borderline you tend to only notice when you're trying to teach them something or you're trying to help them read like because they learn to mask it right so you just don't notice when you're speaking to them but as you get, you know, lower and lower, right, it starts becoming more and more noticeable because there are deficits that they just can't mask. And so the fact that it's super obvious to us would be kind of an indicator as well as the fact that the police would be put on notice, so to speak, that there's something up that they might want to do. Um, because also, so all of these, right, has to be knowing, intelligent, voluntary. We've spoken about that before. But the police get it. And for reasons outside of their knowledge, it's not one of those three things. So if a person is mentally ill and delusional and comes up and confesses, but the police don't know that, like the delusion is about like, my wife cheated on me, so I murdered her. And she wasn't necessarily doing that, but the cops don't fucking know that, right? Mm -hmm. They would be able to get that in because there's nothing they could have done to remedy that situation. So we can't punish them for letting, for getting that confession. And technically but, speaking, that's not, that wouldn't be something that you would uh, Mirandize because that's a spontaneous utterance, which has different rules. Yes, but also, like, if they are just confessing, like, on their own. So, like, it's, it's, it's just a random example, but, like, if there is something that the police cannot know about or expect, then they can't fix it, they can't um, accommodate it, and so... They can't be punished for not doing it. And so that's the I mean, that's the, the theory. The reason that lawyers tell you never to talk to police ever under any circumstances is because you don't have to be Mirandized to confess to a crime. It helps. But, you know, if you're just talking to police and you spontaneously confess to the crime, that's admissible. So that's why lawyers are always like, don't talk to them, don't look at them, don't, don't speak with them. Because if you're not yeah. under arrest, anything you say can be used against you. If you are under arrest, you can't waive that. So, yeah. Yeah, so it's it's really weird. But I just wanted to point it out that the fact that the cops would be speaking to him and it's very noticeable that something there is something going on with this guy, mentally speaking, that would kind of put them on notice that maybe he's not super able to waive his own rights currently. And so that would kind of play into. But, again, none of this is used to indict the person making the confession. So it doesn't fucking matter. Another case of, thank God it's not this guy. Yeah. My very last note on this is I feel so fucking sorry for this man because, like, oh my God, he he's going through it. Cause he like, looked through the window and his sister turned to him and he thought she said go away, but what she was actually saying was help us and the, he'll have to live with that knowledge for the rest of his life, yeah. which awful. It's also weird to me because he says that he thought that she said get out. And when Hodge is saying it, he's like, oh, he's, he thought that she said go away. But, like, I think it's way more fucked up if he thinks that she's saying get out and she's saying get help. Because it's so, it's so close. But, yeah. So, he obviously loves his sister. She told him not to come to the house because her husband didn't like him. Husband's, a, like, a dick, I think. I, I don't know. Like, here's the thing. 
I don't know what the experience living with this guy is, but, uh, you know, maybe he's done things in the past that have made it unconducive to have a relationship, especially with young children in the house. At the same time, the husband seems unwielding. Yeah, it's very shitty. They do mention, they're like, we don't think he could have gotten into the house because I don't see the husband letting her give him a key, but, like, she's already in contact with him against her husband's wishes. I don't think it's wild that she could have given him a key as well. Um, but mm-hmm. that's my thing. They also mention, so he, as he is describing the, because he thinks that it's a friend staying over for dinner, he notices a kid is crying, but he assumes that they're in trouble and, like, all of that. So he's describing the quote-unquote friend, which we know is the um, suspect, and he says that they have red hair, but this unsub when they arrest him, doesn't really have red hair. The red herring that they toss in, the female doctor that we'll get to, has red hair so maybe it's one of those like they're trying to distract you and then hoping you forget about it by the end of the episode which i did my first watch through but mm-hmm. i thought it was like weird to toss that in i mean he's kind of he's kind of like a dusty ginger maybe yeah maybe yeah so it's enough to like get it through yeah uh yeah so morgan's contacting people for records they have a whole scene about it um so he's getting those willingly as they are going through and asking, like, the people's work friends, again, giving information willingly. None of these people are under arrest, et cetera, et cetera. Um, they do get permission to look through these people's work belongings. And so this is where it's kind of weird because it's work. So I don't think you'd necessarily have a full expectation of privacy, right? I mean, it would be super weird if my boss went through my desk, but, like, I can imagine it happening, so to speak. But also, since the victims are dead, like, what would happen to that property after they died is someone would pick it up or the work would get through, like, get rid of it. So it's really shady and weird spot. And they don't find anything in their, like, in the victims' offices anyway. They get it all from the friends. So again, it's just, you know, who knows. They notice at one point that all that the two parents were um, government employees, so they all share the same insurance. Reed makes a joke about everyone being medicated if they're in therapy, so he says, let's look up all of the people on medication. Garcia says that she is hacking the HMO database. Why the fuck are you doing that? Yeah, so let's... You can... <laughs> let's do- note that for a second. So HIPAA, the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act of 1996. Um, and I'm looking... My source for this is the CDC. They have a page on this. Um, HIPAA basically, it protects your right to privacy in terms of medical care. So, you know, privacy is defined by, it's the Fourth Amendment? Yes. So HIPAA actually only applies to doctors and medical staff giving your information, actually. It actually does not. Uh, It does cover healthcare providers, health plans, healthcare clearinghouses, and business associates because... Like, specifically on the CDC page, health maintenance organizations, HMOs, are covered by uh, HIPAA. The exception being a group plan with fewer than 50 people. But uh, given that this is the government, that will uh, not count. So, like... Well, let me let me clarify. It covers, like, healthcare providers, etc., willingly giving away private information or having it so available that it might as well not be protected. But someone, like, breaking into the hospital and reading your records or hacking into your database, mm-hmm. that's not necessarily a HIPAA violation because they didn't, they had reasonable protections. That is the breaking of the law on the part of the person, like, getting into your information. 
No, I'm not saying the HMO is going to get in trouble because Derek Morgan kicked a door down. I'm saying, uh, like, they're, like in terms of, like, what laws they're violating in this episode, Garcia is straight up violating HIPAA by, uh, by hacking well, into this Well, that's program. what I'm saying is she's not the one violating it. She, like, HIPAA only would apply to the leak of whatever the doctors or someone is willingly giving them. She is violating, like, basic privacy rights, basic things like that, but she wouldn't necessarily be violating HIPAA. That is only if someone leaks it or doesn't protect your information. Does that make sense? Okay. Yeah, so we'll get to the, all the HIPAA stuff in a little bit, which is when they're going through all of the files and things. But this would be a violation of, like I said, you're hacking it, you're doing a search, you're doing everything else with people's very private information um, mm-hmm. that you wicked could have just said, hey, can we get the two dead families like medical records? And you would have gotten it super easily because you got everything else really easily, but you're just hacking it. Mm-hmm. She does make a really funny joke about Reed being someone's bitch in jail that I did appreciate. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They also, like, they cut to a scene because they find out what doctor has been prescribing the medication and just bust in during their appointment, which mm-hmm. doesn't seem very ethical. Like, it seems like you would wait or, like, call the doctor from the front desk and have them come up. And maybe have someone watching the exits if you think that'll make her bolt. But, like, because it's a little little girl like six or seven like appointment and so they just like walk in and they're like we're the fbi and the mom like grabs little girl and like hurries out so that's really weird yeah that's like got that's got to be violation of like if not rules and policies yeah of like something it's weird but yeah so they do tell her to take a seat and have a discussion this is an arrest we can't really call this i don't like we could i think we could call it an arrest because they are in her office so i don't think she's in a particular position to leave and also like coming in during the appointment it's very clear that they are not going to be taking like go away for an answer Mm -hmm. but again they clear her as the suspect pretty quickly so does it matter they start asking her questions about like why are you the one prescribing it she's like well i'm the only medical doctor i'm the only one that can prescribe So I only met these families maybe once to make the um, prescription. They were really farmed out, you know, to whatever other psychiatrist is on staff, which happens to be one other psychiatrist, our actual unsub. Is this a HIPAA violation? Because she does go through paper files and gives out this information that would be protected. This absolutely is. So all of this information would be protected. Now, because you can't even say that they are getting treatment at your office without their express consent or a warrant. Now, Morgan does at one point or another, because as they are going to search, I wrote all this down, by the way, because the timeline of these, like, scenes is fucking wild. So, mm-hmm. they're in her office, they're getting all this information, which up till now, it's weird, because do they have a warrant or not? We don't know. We will assume that they don't, because they don't mention one. And so, that would be a violation. But as they ask her, like, well, where the fuck is his office? She says, well, it's here's his name. He won't be in today. He's working. You know, he's off today. We can go look at it. And so they get a team out to go search the man's house as they go down to his office. So they show them getting to his office like 30 seconds later, and Morgan is like, they're like, well, we can go get a key. It's locked. And Morgan's like, no, we don't have time. And just fucking kicks the door in <laughs> instead of getting security, which is wild to me because it looks like it's so quickly happening but they mentioned shortly after that they had the information that they searched his house and he wasn't in it so maybe there was like two or three hours of getting the warrant waiting around going to his office like 
like I said, the timing, it seems like it's happening like 10 seconds after the other, like this is just like a logical progression, but the things that are happening in the background would need a lot of time. But I also mention it because if they're getting a warrant for his house, they can presumably get a warrant for his office and any medical records, which once they have a warrant, then they can search it. But I don't think they can break the door down. Like that's a, <laughs> that's a destruction of property law. Yeah. So they can get it. Like they can search the files, but yeah, I genuinely don't understand why they don't spend five minutes getting a janitor to come unlock the door. Like I, I would like to be the uh, lawyer with the slap suit or whatever, not the slap suit, but like, I like with the fucking hi, I'm here to sue the FBI for this fucking door that broke. <laughs> so they go through all of this. So also, so the, so doctor patient confidentiality can be really weird because it's actually similar to attorney client confidentiality, which is we can't talk about like the fact that you personally came to us. We can't give your name. We can't like discuss your case. We can't discuss the specifics of your case, but we can discuss like your appearance or things that don't, or like if you told us like, yeah, I went skiing and it has absolutely no relation to anything that you're doing we can mention that. Now, I don't know why you would. This is mostly, like, if you get subpoenaed for another court case, that, like, what you can testify to. But I say that because she's telling them that they're also going on trips, and so how much that relates to the medical care and how relevant, I think it would probably be covered because she only knows it because of, you know, the therapy and things. But again, we will assume that they have a warrant to search all of this and all of the office and everything else. So... Yeah, she is explaining the the dynamics of the family that is still alive. So she's like, she's talking about like well, the issues that they have, which that would be privileged. Right? Yes, that would be. But again, if they have a warrant, then they can start pushing it back against privilege. So you have to have a. But the thing about like a warrant would have to be specific, right? And they they don't know at that point who the family is, so they can get a warrant to search anything in his office. And the reason that she starts explaining about the living family is they find a file in his office that is not his case, it is her case. But since it's in their office, like, it, uh, in his office, then they probably have the right to search it. And also in her defense, she's not telling them this, like, she starts telling them the details about the family, I think, not necessarily to help, but because I think she realizes that they are currently being held by someone who's about to murder them, and she's, like, freaking out. Like, it very much reads as, like, oh my god, they have an eight-year-old named Jackie, she's introverted, like, what's happening? Like, so, still a violation if they didn't have the warrant, but I think it would cover what they're doing because it would, like, be under the protection. Now, as the defense attorney, I would argue against that and say, well, he didn't possess it, um, it wasn't necessarily his case, but I think that would probably get in. Yeah. Things like that. So, they go through, they search his office, et cetera, et cetera. I think that's all of, like, these searches. They do go into the house and find him with the, like, family, with the baby, and he tosses the nine-month-old baby at Gideon and goes to sprint away. Mm-hmm. Gideon catches the baby, and it's all fine. I don't know if nine months old, like, I think nine months is old enough that its neck wouldn't break. Like, they can usually support their own head at that point, yeah. but... The, the fact that that baby's alive is a miracle. <laughs> Yeah, don't throw babies. They aren't softballs. Morgan threatens the unsub and says, if you move, I will break your neck. Not leave, like... And just slam him up against the yeah. wall, too. So, like, there's a there's a use of force here, which I think would be egregious, just in the fact that, like, 
he's not putting him in handcuffs or like restraining him at that point. He does grab him, slam him against the wall, and then verbally threaten him. I think it's egregious and would definitely be a case for police brutality. Unfortunately, police brutality usually has to go through what's called qualified immunity. Again, there is a bunch of podcasts with real, actual lawyers that go through this um, that will explain it better than I can. But generally speaking, qualified immunity is the doctrine that you can't sue a government employee for doing their job. So the really tame example is if a um, someone at the driver's license like bureau doesn't give you your license because you don't have documents or whatever you can't sue them for not giving it to you because it's in the course of their duties so they apply that as well to police officers and they say well if whatever they're doing is within the course of their duties and not unconstitutional on its face then you can't sue them for it now where it gets really shitty is to prove you have to prove that the cop knew it was unconstitutional which means that you have to prove that there was a case that happened similarly that was proven unconstitutional. Now, this has resulted in things where if there's not a similar case, the court just throws it out, and so that case is never recorded and can't be used as a case in the future. So, for example, there was an Arkansas case where police got in trouble for doing what they called hog-tying suspects, which is tying someone's hands and feet and connecting them behind your back. And one suspect died, they sued, the court found that there was no um, similar case, so it couldn't be unconstitutional on its face, the cops couldn't have known, and threw the case out. And I think a few years later, someone brought the exact same case because it killed another person. And since the court had thrown out that previous case, it wasn't on their record, and so they couldn't have shown that it was unconstitutional to the police. So, again, a lot of podcasts that go into it for like 40 hour long episodes, because it's a really complicated legal doctrine, um, with a lot of case law and yeah. things like that. But that's the general idea, is you have to be able to prove that whatever is happening on its face is a violation of your constitutional rights and a case almost exactly like it has happened before. Like, the difference between a suspect being kneeling and standing as they raised a toy gun has been the difference between a case getting thrown out or not. So, it's pretty crazy. But all of that is to say that I think that this is definitely, um, like, police brutality and completely unnecessary, but it wouldn't survive any type of claim. Okay. And then they would go down. So they mentioned at one point, they're like, well, we have, we can't find any of his DNA inside the house. So we really need this confession because otherwise we can't get anything. But like, they have his journals. We also really need to have JJ in this episode. Yeah, because they have his journals. They have him at the house of a family who will identify him and say exactly what he was doing. We have the testimony of the brother who can place him at the family doing the same thing. So that's at least two crimes we can get at they go through his um, office later they don't know this at the time so I'll give them a pass on that but they do go through his office later and find like eight or nine wedding rings because he's keeping the husband's wedding rings as trophies and that's obviously evidence for what he's doing so I mean I think they could make a decent case without a confession but you know a confession always helps right so I assume he waived his rights again they make every suspect into like Hannibal Lecter so he's talking like I'm very cool and very calm and super awesome. And of course I don't need an attorney. So maybe it's really weird. He does mention like, they're not really getting anything out of him. Cause they're like, we have your journals. And he's like, well, all that says is that I went into their houses and you know what? Yeah. Sometimes I do go into people's houses without permission because I'm a doctor and they don't tell me things and I need to know it for my, um, for my work, which still a felony, but like, cool. But it's, it's even that like you, 
you can make the argument like just because he's writing it in a journal does not mean it's factual so lawyers in the past have argued like it's fantasy and you can't you can't thought crime somebody so like well i agree but because he wrote down in his journal that i've been here doesn't mean he's actually been here if you can't prove it i agree but also when you can connect him so thoroughly to two of the crimes and can start doing that i'm not saying that like it would go great in court but that is the argument that would be making right is look he wrote that he went into these houses here's how he wrote down that he did it they are in the house. We have the living family to tell you what happened. We have the brother to tell you who did the same thing with the um, Millers. We have, you know, the Crawfords, which look like the same things were happening. But I think the Crawfords might get off, right? Because, again, just having him write down that he did it can be kind of sus. But for the very least, you have the murder of five people and the kidnapping of another five or four. And the kidnapping of another four, which is already a pretty fucking long prison sentence. Um, but again, the cops want to get you with everything that they can, right? So he starts talking, um, Gideon does this fun game where he puts up the crime scene photos behind him, but takes a picture of like someone's foot or something and puts it in the wrong family. And the unsub gets pissed off enough and is like, that's not the right, you need to move it. It's not with the right family. Like it's pissing me off. And Gideon goes, um, yeah, like, you're right. That is the kid's foot from one family. But how the fuck did you know that? And that's, like, the line drop moment. And they cut to the unsub giving, like, a full videotaped confession of everything he did and exactly why he did it, which is making some defense attorney somewhere in the fictional universe just burst into tears. But, again... (laughs) Yeah, his... What's the defense lawyers that are appointed? Public defenders. His public defender is just sitting there. Yeah. Well, he's he's a doctor, so presumably he makes enough money to not qualify. He's got to hire his own counsel. But still, someone somewhere is crying. And it's just (laughs) wild. But yeah, so that's the general legal, like, analysis of the entire episode. Again, the plot is fucking crazy. I love this episode. I think it's insane. It's really fun. Uh, I do like um, that they have, like, the red herring of, like, maybe it was a lady. And it was like, no... (laughs) <laughs> yeah they did they did their fake out because again they have once a season where it's a female unsub and that's the plot twist and they're like are we gonna make it the plot twist twice in a season absolutely not <laughs> no <laughs> yeah no so a lot of shit just happens in this episode and it's fucking wild i do like the uh let's do an ex-wife check i fucking love yes <laughs> like She's like, I really hate that guy. As long as he's not violating his fucking restraining order, I don't give a shit where he is. I don't want to fucking hear from him. He's angry, he's controlling, he's manic. I also, this is something I meant to note earlier too, is his like fellow therapist doctor didn't realize that he was the abusive husband in, this, in like the relationship. And from her point of view, right, the divorce destroyed him, he was having a hard time, etc. That's not super unrealistic because we don't know how much contact she had with the wife personally, but abusers are generally very good at spinning the situation to favor them and if she is working with him and isn't necessarily talking to his wife she is only getting his version of events plus because he's a he's a psychological doctor so he would know how to manipulate a situation to make himself sound more sympathetic exactly and even if you're not a psychological doctor again most abusers are very good at turning people against the victim Um, Mm -hmm. And not even turning against, right? Just making them think that they are not the abuser and the victim is lying or making it up or what have you. And that's if the doctor even knows that there are abusive allegations and not just like a messy divorce. So I Mm -hmm. think it's pretty realistic that the other medical like psychologist and psychiatrist, because she has an MD, would like not necessarily notice the abuse was occurring or that he was an abuser. Yeah, no, it's, um, 
It's just so much happening. Do you want my one piece of trivia from this episode? Because I looked at the trivia pages and I hate all of them except for this one. Oh, I've been looking forward to it all week. Okay, cool. So the fun fact of trivia for this is uh, I have mentioned fucking ad nauseum that Tony Todd is in this film, correct? Or in this episode, right? Yes. Um, So Tony Todd, as I mentioned earlier, was in Final Destination. Do you know who else in this cast for this episode has starred in a Final Destination movie? I do not. AJ Cook. JJ was the lead actress in Final Destination 2. Oh, shit. I've never seen any of the movies, so I had no idea. <laughs> yeah, so um, Final Destination is, um, I'm sure the viewers know, I don't know how much you know, but it's, uh, it's the movie series where basically people accidentally survive fatal accidents, and so they get on death's hit list, and they get murdered by just awful saw traps, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> so Final Destination 2 is probably the most famous of the series because it's got the the worst fucking accident because final destination one is a plane crash final destination two is a a fucking car wreck on a highway and everybody like a guy gets thrown out of off of a motorcycle and just skids down the road uh like a tree carrying like a truck carrying like tree logs just stops and then fucking logs go through a minivan uh, everybody, it's so gruesome and ugly. God, I thought about that happening to me every time I drove anywhere in Louisiana, where log trucks are just fucking everywhere. <laughs> yeah, no, so AJ Cook is, uh, a brunette in this film, I think, too. Ooh. Yeah, no, I, hey, I'm looking at two pictures of her side by side, one where she's blonde and one where she's a brunette, and I know I'm face blind, but this is just obscene. Um, <laughs> like, uh, I, I cannot recognize her with brown hair, but, um, no, she, so... In, in, yeah, so in Destination 2, she's a psychic that sees herself dying in a terrible car accident. <laughs> and like, wow, AJ Cook, I'm glad you got to reunite with your with your bestie, uh, Tony Todd, who, by the way, in, in that series, he plays a mortician that is also maybe death. And he's just, uh, like, the fucking famous line is, um, uh, like, you, you, you play death, and that's one Mac Daddy you don't want to get in front of. Um, <laughs> Christ. <laughs> stupidest line in cinema history <laughs> but yeah so um all the other trivia like the hey when i tell you that imdb trivia for criminal minds sucks i mean that one of the pieces of trivia is that hotch has a picture of robert Mueller in his office <laughs> i'm like what i don't care but yeah so that is kind of all we have for this episode but yeah so that was episode seven outfoxed um next week we will be covering episode eight which is no sorry this one was called the fox the next one is natural born killer episode eight um so that one's that one's pretty fucking wild from my memory it is yeah so we will see you next week thank you for listening to work case yeah thank you Thanks for listening to Work the Case. If you liked today's episode, please consider leaving a five-star review in iTunes. It really does help get our podcast out to more listeners. And if you want updates on when the next episode will drop and other tweets about the show, follow us on Twitter at WorkTheCasePod.